This is Photo Geek Weekly, the photo geekery show, uh, and it's episode 136, recorded on January 27th of 2021, where we just kind of geek out about the photo news in the industry that comes across uh, the photo blogs and the newswire, as it were. Uh, and I'm your host, Don Kamarechka. With me every week, there is somebody in the co-pilot seat. Uh, and this week is a good buddy of mine, Jeff Harmon. Jeff, how are you doing today? Doing, doing well. So glad I could come and be on again. Thank you for inviting me. Love having you on. And, uh, and you know, we, we just actually recorded an episode of uh, your podcast, the Photo Taco uh, Photography Podcast, uh, talking about diffraction, which uh, everybody should listen to when it's out. Probably, uh, wh- wh- when do you think that's going to be out? Yeah, probably uh, on the, uh, let's see, the 28th. Of January. Oh, so, so tomorrow, tomorrow the, day the day after we're recording, recording this, so yeah. we're kind of going in tandem here. Yep. Um, so you'll be able to check that out and uh, listen to a fun discussion about it. And we we started that because um, I did a video on DP Review TV talking about diffraction, and uh, I want to encourage everybody to go and watch that seven minute video. If you don't know what it is, it's a buzzword that you've heard bantered about people arguing about it because people love to argue about this particular thing um then go take a look at that video and see what it means to you it's not uh a complete uh physics lesson on what's happening but it does visually show you exactly what you need to know from a non-technical standpoint to help everybody uh understand what the phenomenon is and how it can affect you in your photography so thank you for that discussion on your podcast as well which is a a longer form version of the video where we kind of get to the weeds a little bit, which I like to do when we have the time to do it. Absolutely. It was fun. It was. It was. And uh, and Jeff, thanks for being on uh, Photo Geek Weekly again for a great number of stories. But before we get into that, uh, what's been keeping you busy uh, in the beginning of 2021? And uh, well, since the last time we talked, I think it's well, it's been a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm keeping uh, super busy. I there's so much going on. I, I have a day job. I have a nine to five. So there's there's that that's happening. But for, at least with the photography, uh, I'm breaking in a new camera. I I upgraded my camera to the so, uh, to the Canon. I almost said Sony there, but it was a Canon R6. Uh, that was my Christmas present this last year. And so I'm I'm learning all the ins and outs of switching from a DSLR to mirrorless and what that's providing it's it's been so much fun i loved the transition myself i mean uh, to, to me it was uh you know when i was starting to to shoot with micro four thirds cameras they were great the viewfinders were well they left a bit to be desired um but then when i looked through the uh, the s1 series camera bodies with a really high resolution electronic viewfinder i thought yeah yeah there's there's no going back uh, at, at this point and they're g- going to continue to improve quality and performance. And and how's the uh, the R6 treating you? Yeah, I mean, I haven't had that much time with it yet. So there's there's a lot to explore and figure out. But I have done like a high school basketball game. I've shot a basketball game. And that was so much fun to, to have that work and try to figure out like, do I want IAF on or do I want to do the focus myself and, and playing around with things. So so that was fun. We went to Bryce Canyon. So I, I have had a little bit of time with it, but but not enough to really make any significant judgments. But so far, just because of the familiarity, like I'm still in Canon land. That's where I've been my whole photography career. And it's super familiar because of that. There's there's very little transition 
no pain associated with it. And, and it's probably just a matter of figuring out like how to leverage the new capabilities in the camera that I haven't had before. Well, and, and that's the, the kind of thing where uh, I, when I'm looking to buy a new camera, I will look through the PDF of the manual before the camera starts to ship because that usually leaks. And I get to see all the custom functions and go through all of the, uh, the, the tiny little persnickety details even before I get my hands on the camera. And so then when I do finally uh, get it in, uh, in operational mode, I, I just automatically start hunting through and flipping all sorts of things from one setting to the next. And, uh, you know, it, it's a bit of a, I don't know, it, it, it's a mind journey where you have to wrap your head around this new tool that might be very familiar with the, you know, previous camera that you've been using. But still, there's going to be new things under the hood that if you're not, if you don't tackle it right away, um, the initial excitement and the initial momentum of, oh, well, I can do this now, I can do that now, I can change this and that, goes away, and you never go and revisit those settings, and you never see the true potential of what that can be, because you just kind of get stuck in the same way of, oh, well, it's just my new camera now, I'll use it like my old one. Exactly, yeah. There's there's features I need to figure out, like the frame rate that is possible on the on the R6 is much faster and but i had to go all electronic shutter and i'm i i needed to figure out like downsides of doing that as specific to the r6 and there's just there's a lot to it i what, one of the benefits that i'm loving the most though is seeing the histogram in in you know real time as i'm looking through the viewfinder since it is an evf and it can do that that's that's been invaluable i've just loved being able to have that so there's definitely some things I'm, i've really looked forward to and uh, and I'm I'm hoping to continue to learn some more, you know, over this this year in 2021. It's going to be really fun to get to uh, the nuts and bolts of all of it. Yeah, and and of course you've got the ability to adapt all of your previous lenses and and everything else. So um, I think that anybody looking to buy a camera now is pretty well going to be buying into the mirrorless market. I think that the uh, that the bottom has just completely fallen out of the traditional flapping mirror market for the big players anyhow i think pentax is still holding on good luck to them yeah well and if not <laughs> by no other thing just because the camera makers have decided like that's where the market's at so that's what they're going to invest in and people generally have been like happy enough with their dslrs that we got to a point where those cameras were phenomenal and there just wasn't enough in new versions like it, in canon in particular when they're looking at Maybe should we make a 5D Mark V? Well, what would we put in there that's yeah. going to really make it something that a 5D Mark IV owner is going to want to buy? There's, there's just not, it's hard to make that justification. Whereas mirrorless, yeah, there's, there's some big advantages that, that can be had there. And, uh, and they can make that argument. And they have lenses they can sell now too. So changing the lens mount, not only does that mean buying a new camera, it means buying new lenses to take advantage of the full advantage of that new lens mount even though the adapters work quite well. I'm really, really pleased with how that's going. So I can see why the, the camera manufacturers are, are putting all their eggs in that basket right now. <laughs> well, and so that brings us to the first story, and it's a big one. And this is uh, Sony uh, has unveiled the Alpha One, uh, a 50 megapixel full frame camera capable of 30 frames per second <laughs> at 50 megapixels uh, and 8K. So that's uh, phenomenal specs, right? And, you know, Sony's kind of had a tradition of doing this where uh, they wait until everybody else kind of struts their stuff, 
right? You know, uh, Canon with the R5 and the R6 um, and, and says, okay, hold my beer. <laughs> and, and just kind of said, well, obviously we can do better. Uh, and here's exactly how we can take every spec that you list and, uh, and one up you. Now, obviously that's not since that announcement of the R5, this has been in development for a much longer time than that. Um, but, uh, it's interesting to see what Sony has been able to cram into this new flagship body. And I am annoyed, you know, we, we have the, uh, the the A uh, A seven series, and then they came out with the A nine series. All right, bigger number means better, uh, but now smaller number means even better. Uh, sort of like Canon was consistent, you know, the seventy five D, you know, one D series bodies uh, in in the past. Uh, Nikon was weird, where the uh, uh, their flagship single digit series kept going up by a digit, right? The D three four five six. Um, and so uh, Sony's now, whatever, the Alpha 1. Uh, that's what <laughs> <Right>. we got. <laughs> but it, it uh, seems like they, they're, they're being very crafty in the release of this camera with regard to at least the marketing of it. I agree. This has probably been in development for a while. And, and they may even have more. Like they may be, I don't know how the, the manufacturing lines control that they've got might be exactly, but... I, I can imagine that if they could, the marketing team would want to say, let's just make sure we we go just a little past. Like, let's not let's not release everything we've got <laughs> in in the pipeline. Um, but let's make sure when we release a camera, it's going to be like the best camera that's available when we release it. Let's beat everyone else by at least a little bit. And and maybe if we can, we can hold back so that, we, you know, we have another body to release pretty soon after it that can go even even deeper and further. And this one is definitely a an engineering marvel, no question. With the frame rates and the the resolutions that they've got here, the specs are very very impressive, and uh, and I think the naming even kind of shows like they're trying to position it to be like equivalent of the one D line from Canon, that the really super high end professional sports photographer, professional. Um, wildlife photographer kind of uh, go anywhere, do anything camera that's that's available to them. Well, and it's it's significant improvements over the uh, previous uh, crop of cameras. You know, uh, they said that in the article here on uh, DP Review uh, that despite having twice as many pixels as the A9, the A1 promises to have 1.5 times less rolling shutter. Um, and a flash sync up to one two hundredth of a second with the electronic shutter, but one four hundredth of a second during the uh, using the mechanical shutter, and that might be a significant improvement for certain people. Um, it's got a nine point four four million dot electronic viewfinder, which is the creme de la creme. Yeah, um, fabulous. They're rolling in the uh, uh, the high resolution mode, the pixel shift mode, to get two hundred meg or just shy of two hundred megapixel. Um, high resolution images uh, coming off of this thing, like it is, um, you know, it's like a Halo car. I mean, how many people actually buy a Ford GT? Right, we're not talking about a Mustang GT, just like the Ford GT, like that supercar class of, and, and a lot of car manufacturers have this vehicle that is far above and beyond the performance of the regular stuff. Right but it costs a fortune. And so it's there sitting on a pedestal for people to drool over. And so too is the A1 with a price tag uh, in US dollars coming in at 
$6,500. We're getting into Leica territory here in terms of dollar value for the camera. Um, how, how do you feel about where it's priced? Because that puts it outside the realm of most photographers. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that part of it I am a little confused by, honestly. Because, yes, it is beating everything out there. The, the technical specifications beats everything that is offered by anybody else, but not by so much that it justifies that big of a cost difference, I think. Now, maybe there's reason for it, like in the processing of this camera, the uh, manufacturing of it is is so demanding that it has to cost that much for them to to make what they need to off of the camera. I, I don't know, but that's that that cost is so big. I guess it's going to be the new dentist pick, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dentists and lawyers and such, right? right? You know, um, but in in that area, we've got uh, we've got a couple of downsides to it as well. Things that I mean are are curious to me. Number one, the full width of the sensor, if you were to be recording video, uh, would be eight point six k. So what they do is they internally downsample eight point six k. You're still using the full width of the sensor. Uh, but you're only getting 8K out of it. I mean, if you can do 8.6K, why not just do that? Right. You know, from a spec sheet perspective, you're edging out 8K, you're beyond that. And if you're a professional that requires that breadth of resolution, um, you can downsample it anyhow. I know a lot of people ask me to do work at 5.9K when the deliverable is 4K, uh, but they'd rather have the, the highest resolution. And then they can work with that uh, in other ways. So I th I, there might be some standards that I'm, I'm not uh, abreast on specifically there. But what else was interesting is it uses CF Express Type A cards. Are you familiar with the differences in those cards? Between A and B? Uh, a and B, yeah. Yeah. No, and I don't know the, the technical differences between the two. I just knew there were the two types. Yeah, well, and there's actually a, a C type as well. So it, it's based on the size and the number of PCI Express lanes that the cards can can utilize. So okay. uh, CF Express uh, Type B, which was the first standard that we uh, saw, that's sort of the evolution of the XQD cards, um, that uh, used two uh, PCI Express lanes for communication to the card. Uh, and Type A cards are smaller, and they only have one PCI Express lane, so half the bandwidth. And there is Type C, which is four. Uh, four lanes, so that doubles okay. it from the B. Um, I guess the benefit with uh, CF Express Type A is that it is compatible also with SD cards in the same slot if you engineer them that way. Uh, and it'll just auto switch, and you got two card slots. They're both compatible with either uh, CF Express Type A or SD. And so there's some nice compatibility there. But if you're shooting 50 megapixels at 30 frames per second, I would not want to compromise on the bandwidth to the memory card. That just seems like a convenience factor that somebody buying this camera doesn't care about. Well, and it, it fits with kind of some things they've had before. I remember testing one of the, I think it was the A7R3, and one card slot was full speed, and the other card slot was, was not. It worked at a slower speed than the, the first one, and that doesn't make any sense either. Like, why... Why did we do that to make it so that the, the card slots don't both perform at the same speed? So they've made some interesting choices with their, their memory card slots in the past, too. It looks like they're continuing. And it doesn't make sense for 8K video either. Same thing. 
you, you don't you want the fastest kind of write speeds that you can get. Actually, for video, especially if you're doing raw video, uh, it actually it, it's not as big of a file sure. as, as one might might imagine. So uh, so long as you have a sustained throughput that is capable on uh, on whatever media you're throwing in there, then I think you should be fine. But if this is a stills camera. Uh, and yeah, they say, you know, 15 stops of dyna- uh, dynamic range for still 15 plus for video, which is unusual. I, I mean, I know you've got all the raw formats for video, but it kind of seems weird that they're saying that the video mode edges out the stills a little bit. Um, so it, uh, there, there's a few unknowns here. I think the proof's going to be in the pudding when people actually get a chance to get their hands on it, get some tests and actually have raw processing support from our, uh, you know, big rock. Uh, processors from like Adobe and Phase One and On One and uh, whoever else that's uh, that's in that game. And once we get that, I think it's going to be a really interesting camera because uh, if if you need that quality of video, uh, well, you might want to have to go up to a dedicated video camera, right? That <laughs> right. Stills might not even <laughs> be on it, uh, which is you know I, I bought the uh, the Lumix S1H for its video capabilities, uh, not to really shoot stills on it. I don't. Well, I, I think I have just to test it, but um, that's what I do a lot of my studio recording for videos and stuff is um, this looks like it might uh, kind of have a nice little bit of wiggle room on both sides. Um, we'll see. Uh, at that price, though, it puts it into that halo position, right? You know, it, it it's an unattainable treasure. So uh, I was disappointed that they didn't go ahead with the curved sensor rumor. I was about to mention that because there was a rumor, and you you uh, hinted at this. Uh, you uh, mentioned me on Twitter and brought the story to my attention um, that Sony uh, could have potentially rolled out a curved sensor camera. And and who knows? They may still in the future. I have no idea what the future holds for them or any other manufacturer. I just know that this technology is coming into existence. Um, but it would be really bold for Sony to have gone with a curved sensor because um, if you change that, that cur- if that curvature is different, then uh, all of your lenses have to be redesigned or an adapter to make them compatible uh, has to have corrective optics in it. And, and that's relatively unfeasible if we're already in the mirrorless space. So, yeah, um, I would love to see a curved sensor format from any manufacturer where the lens design can be made more simple as a result uh, so that you don't have to have all sorts of aspherical elements and uh, and massive engineering efforts to uh, get the corners perfectly sharp, where if it's just curved, that's more inherent to the way light bends and you don't have to play against the physics uh, therein. So Sony didn't do that, uh, at least not with the A1. Uh, hopefully some manufacturer comes along and does it. But again, it requires a completely rebrand. Uh, a, a brand new format and system. And with every major player right now already in the mirrorless space with flat sensors, not sure if we're going to see full adoption of that anytime soon. Unless, uh, uh, hey, Pentax, here's your ticket. You know, <laughs> you said you didn't want to get into the mirrorless space, but if nobody else has done the curved sensor, then you can corner that market. So uh, there, there's a free tip for you. Yeah, and in... You know, you can save it for uh, 2022 or maybe beyond and, and charge 10 grand for it at that point. There you go. There you go. So, Sony, congratulations on the launch of your new A1. Uh, we'll have to see exactly how many people put it to the use, what the image quality is actually like. Uh, yeah, it doesn't have a fully articulating screen. Some people are going to be complainers about that. 
Um, but uh, it does look like a nice camera body. Yes, it does. Yeah. All right. Uh, following on that, uh, you know, we've got engineering marvels, not just in cameras, but in lenses. And, uh, you know, Canon recently announced their RF uh, 100 to 500 millimeter super telephoto lens, which is an engineering uh, masterpiece from the teardown that was done by Lens Rentals. However, and this was curious, they saw uh, on numerous copies of the lenses that they ordered uh, for rental purposes, a, uh, a cracked, like almost a shattered lens inside, like not the front or the back, somewhere in the middle. Uh, and that gave me the excuse to read another Lens Rentals teardown <laughs> article, which I will use any excuse to do. Um, did you did you read the article? Oh, yes. I love like you. It, I really need to to make sure I follow Lens Rentals blog more closely because everything they put up there, I'm interested in. <laughs> I love the teardowns that they do. And it's it's long form journalism too. Like you got to set aside 20 minutes to get through it. And I'm sitting there in the morning with my cup of coffee and my hand starts to shake a little bit as I see all of these screws <laughs> and how they're all like I could I could take this thing apart. Absolutely. I could. It, it would never go back together again. <laughs> right. Uh, and they even got worried about that. These two that are so experienced with this, they started down the front of the lens and went, oh, no, this is not a good way to go. Let's see about the back. <laughs> I think they've done that a lot. Uh, and eventually they finally find their way through. But some of the uh, the screws are uh, they've got specific adjustment points on them where, you know, if you don't put them back at exactly the right tension, right. then things will be out of alignment. And so you've got to mark everything. And um I yeah I I no I, I couldn't do it I, but but they did and they they finally found an internal element that they were very confused as to why it could possibly break some people might have been suggesting temperature stress on it nope uh damage like from an external force probably not uh, it, Roger Sakala of of Lens Rentals thought that maybe it's because that particular element is so thin at one point uh that just whatever atmospheric pressures or just something uh, causes it to, uh, to to break. And he noticed that they were all within a similar serial number range. And so it might be something that they fixed, but they're talking to Canon about it and actively communicating uh, the particular issue. The teardowns are really interesting. And the fact that these lenses break, that's really where the... Con I, I encourage everybody to read the article. There's not a whole, much, a whole lot more to discuss uh, about that. But Jeff, have you ever had a lens break on you? Um, so not necessarily fully broken, like like a crack in there or something that where I couldn't use it anymore. I've had minor, more cosmetic things happen. Mostly, I've had like a little. There's a little panel on one of my uh, one of my lenses that's near like the image stabilization switch. And that little panel came off, but some super glue put that right back on. There was no problem to to get that there. So now I right. haven't really thankfully i haven't gone through the experience of actually breaking a lens thus far well lucky you um i, I i've had a couple um one of them was uh, actually not my lens but uh my uncle i recommended that he buy a sigma i believe it was the 150 to, to, to 500 millimeter uh telephoto lens and he called me up maybe a year or so after he made the purchase he was really happy with the lens but he said you know don it's like there's something uh, jangling around inside the lens. That's not oh. right, right? No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. That's something is very wrong. 
Um, and I told them uh, to send it back to me and I will uh, drop it off directly to, uh, to Gentech, which is the Canadian distributor uh, for Sigma products here in Canada, or at least they were at the time. Uh, and I, I heard from the uh, repair technician, he got in touch with me and he said, no, th this, is, this is impact damage. There's three control arms on the image stabilization unit. And uh, all three of them have snapped. Oh. And, and I, I remember my, my uncle takes meticulous care of, of his equipment. And I remember looking at it. There was not a scratch on the thing. So I said, okay, if it's impact damage, show me a photo of where the impact was. And they fixed the lens for free. Because there was <laughs> no impact damage on that. And I have no idea why it broke. Uh, but no, that, that lens was, uh, somehow faulty from the manufacturing process and it happens. Don't get me wrong. Um, uh, even the best manufacturers, they have some lemons once in a while. Sure. Uh, another one that was quite frustrating for me, uh, was the Canon 24 to 105, uh, F4L lens, which was the kit lens that I got with my 5D or 5D Mark II, uh, uh back in the day, good workhorse of a lens for about three and a half years. Uh, and then there's a ribbon cable that uh, most of these lenses have one or multiple ribbon cables that run up and down the barrel. And this one had one that connected to the aperture assembly. And it got pinched at the extreme. Forget if it was fully telephoto or fully wide, but at one of those extremes, it pinched a little bit. And after uh, you know three years of really solid use, it starts to crack. And, uh, and then there's no communication uh, with it. So I was... I was in Istanbul. I might have told the story before on this podcast, but I'll tell it again. Uh, and we were in the Blue Mosque, I think, and just uh, just traveling tourist stuff. Uh, I had three lenses with me. I brought the 24 to 105 because it covered just about everything I could imagine. And then I just brought some trick lenses. I brought a 15 millimeter fisheye lens and my MPE 65 millimeter macro lens just to go off onto some tangents. But the main lens I was intending on using was the 24 to 105. Well, it started giving me lens communication errors in the Blue Mosque, and I realized the only way that it would work was at 24 millimeters. Anything beyond that, and it would give me a lens communication error. So what I had to do is uh, at 24 millimeters, set the aperture on the camera to the aperture that I wanted the lens to be at, uh, then press the depth of field preview button around the lens so that would lock the aperture down into that position. Then press the lens removal mount button to slightly dismount the lens to stop all communication with the lens. Then uh, rotate the zoom ring to whatever focal length I wanted and manually focus and hope that the lens didn't fall off the camera. I had to do that for two weeks. Uh, and I, how were the photos? Oh, they were great. The few of them that I could take because uh, <laughs> uh, it was horribly inconvenient. But uh, I looked it up online when I encountered this problem and so many other people were having common the same issue. issue. Uh, common issue, constant use with that lens and Canon refused to uh, issue a statement about it uh, and they refused to, uh, to fix it uh, under, under warranty or from some recall or anything like that. I had to pay for it. I paid for it. Got it fixed. Three and a half years later, broke again. Happens again. Yeah. The exact same, the replacement part was as faulty as the original. And I just, yeah, I, I kind of lost a little bit of faith in Canon uh, yeah. in, in those moments. 
there was other reasons why I lost faith in Canon, but let's not go down that uh, path too far. Uh, but I will mention they really, really dropped the ball uh, by charging me 50 bucks to clean my camera sensor and not even touching the camera. Um, so, yeah. Wow. But uh, anyhow, I'm not bitter. I've moved on. I shoot with Lumix cameras now. Um, but yeah, to take a look at that article, uh, uh, see how this, this looks like a really, really well-engineered Canon lens, but still has a flaw somewhere, you know? So yep, something uh, happening. Maybe the best thing about that post is the Hardy Boys novel cover that they put in the front <laughs> of it. I love that. Uh, uh, the secret of the new lens. Uh, I, I would read that Hardy Boys novel. In fact, I kind of feel like I did after reading the entire blog post. It yeah, Anyhow, kind of felt that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, kind of on the opposite spectrum of like the super over-engineered, burly, uh, beefy lenses that, uh, well, they've got a price tag associated with it. I found a, a Petapixel article uh, called In Praise of Inexpensive Lenses from Alan Adler. And... Um, and, you know, Philip Reed, uh, I, who is it here that, that actually wrote it? Uh, yeah, Philip uh, Reeve writes on his website that he's got two hobbies, photography and photographic equipment, and they rarely intersect. <laughs> um, and and uh, I, too, I'm assuming that's Alan, uh, says uh, that he's, he enjoys creating uh, photos and testing lenses. And the two hobbies are very different, right? Uh, I don't know how often Roger Sakala from Lens Rentals actually uh, actively shoots. Uh, with the same level of passion that he has uh, taking lenses apart and, uh, and calibrating them and, and everything else. I mean, yeah, they are, they are two separate beasts. So while we can get all, you know, I don't know, stuck up, I guess, about image quality and MTF charts and everything else, sometimes just a, a good lens that's easy to use and simple, that's all you need, right? I got a couple of lenses like that. And I guess I, I kind of want to praise them too. And as any photographer has, you've probably got a range of glass. Some stuff that might be cheap that came with your camera, some stuff you paid a top dollar for. Uh, but there's always a soft spot for me for those cheap, quirky lenses that just do it well. Uh, they don't do it great, but sometimes it's just more convenient. Jeff, do you have any of those lenses? Oh, I, without a doubt. I this this is kind of the one of the basic foundations of Photo Taco and the the podcast that I started and the the website that I have. It's all dedicated to this this. Uh, it's really unfortunate. The general majority of photography media, they, there's this continual pounding of the drum about really expensive photography here, and it it feels like as as someone started starts. That's unless you have that gear, you have no chance at creating good images. And that's just not true. That's not true at all. You can accomplish incredible things with relatively inexpensive equipment. And so I I really this this spoke to my heart (laughs) as as this article is outlining like, hey, I can take a, a kit lens that is lighter and smaller and I can go and create really good images especially if I get to use uh, some of the, the more the higher f-stops and, and stop down that aperture, I can really create some some compelling images. And it, that's totally true. I, I think uh, we get into this trap or I think a lot of photographers reach for the easy button really, really fast. And like if if I spend 
$10,000 on photography equipment to get the best camera and the best lenses. I'm going to be an incredible photographer. And that's just not how it works either. You've got to have the skill set behind it to know how to use that equipment to, to make it work well. Yeah. And I've got a number of, um, you know, just inexpensive uh, lenses, you know, on the micro four thirds side, I love the, uh, the tiny little, uh, what's to say the G Vario, uh, 12 to 32 millimeter, uh, lens, a spherical elements image stabilizer, but it is a kit lens that they bundle in with the cheapest of the micro four thirds cameras. Um, I love it because it's so tiny that and it's one of those lenses uh if you haven't had any of them that it has to have a barrel that rotates out before it's actually functional uh and it'll give you a warning in the camera software that you have to rotate the barrel of the lens before you can take a picture and that's fine um but if i'm traveling something like this is so convenient and tiny uh you know like especially when we travel uh in in eastern europe uh where it's more socially acceptable for a man to have a man purse uh, such a camera can fit in said man purse. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, and so that, that makes it something that would always uh, be handy. And I've, I've done some great images with this that really hold up. Uh, yeah, it's probably not the best wide open. And I don't know if I've ever really used it wide open, uh, for a lot of the work that's not really required. Uh, and it's not fantastic, but it's also so tiny and convenient and inexpensive, uh, that, I can just kind of throw it around. I, I'll be honest. I lost the lens cap sort of day <laughs> right. one, uh, and it's never had a lens cap on, and it's fine. I don't care. Right. <laughs> uh, but some other lenses that I've had that have been really fun to to use for very specific purposes. Uh, I I picked up a um, an old Canon FD mount two uh, hundred millimeter lens. This is when a two hundred millimeter lens was tiny uh i don't know i guess there's no electronics in it and they just make these things absolutely tiny um it's not great i bought it for 15 dollars, <laughs> so i'm not expecting greatness out of it but i needed a 200 millimeter lens as a tube lens to adapt microscope objectives to my camera and i knew that the quality of those microscope objectives uh was really determined by diffraction and the absolute resolving power that they were capable of. Uh, and that would not match a very high resolution 40 or 50 megapixel uh, camera sensor. It's just, they're incompatible. You're pushing too far against the physics of light. And so if the bottleneck is that optic, I can throw any piece of glass on that that's 200 millimeters. Is uh, The Michitoyo Plan APO uh, Infinity Corrected Microscope Objectives, they require a 200 millimeter base lens to stick them on and you just screw them in with a a, a step down uh, adapter various and so uh yeah 15 dollars well spent worked perfectly and yes i've got a fancier solution now uh from novoflex uh that is purpose built for it but this did it it, it did the trick for 15 dollars. and so there's so many of those things that you just have to understand where the bottleneck might be and how to kind of caress that glass uh, you know in a now, not using it wide open and just being a little bit more careful about if it's a zoom lens, not using it at the extremes, et cetera. Um, and you can get some amazing results with it uh, for very little. It's all about the knowledge, I think, that goes into that. Yeah, for sure. And knowing how to use your equipment, get the most out of it. You can take then, you know, it, less expensive equipment. And when you, the skill behind it makes more of a difference than anything else, then the next one is glass 
after your skill. <laughs> it's a good yeah. class. Yeah. Sure. It all comes in a development process. But, you know, for, for me, there was one thing that, you know, I, I designed some custom flashes uh, for ultraviolet fluorescence photography. And I took them apart and I gaffer taped on some filters on the top that block all visible light and let all uh, ultraviolet light pass through. And it's just a gaffer's tape solution. It wasn't anything fancy, but it's what I knew how to do. And it worked. Well, a shout out to, uh, to, to Bob Loesch, uh, who saw some of my videos on YouTube, including the, uh, the conversion of an ultraviolet flash video that I had done. And he 3D printed this fun little adapter that goes on the flash head on one side and it has filter threads on the other side. And he sent me two of them. I just opened up that box today, actually. And so now, instead of the gaffer's tape solution, I can have this wonderful, really firm-fitting thing that goes right on the end of the flash. And then I can screw in those filters onto the end of that. And it's pristine. It's beautiful. It's elegant. Um, did I need it? No. But now that I have it, I'm happy. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so he, he sent me two of those. Uh, thank you so much, Bob. Uh, I don't know if the, uh, uh, the design uh, he'll make freely available or if he wants to charge people for him. But either way, that's, that's a really cool mod um, that makes it a lot easier to screw those filters on and off. And uh, it's a pretty good snug connection that looks a lot better than my original gaffer's tape solution. So uh, thank you, Bob. I don't know if you listen to the podcast or not, uh, but uh, I appreciate those efforts. It's a lot of fun to see what people do to say, OK, well, I see what you've done. I've got a better solution and I embrace that. I mean, yeah. by all means, uh, show me a better way to do everything because it's always a learning process. You, you never know it all, right? I hope not. <laughs> oh, and if you think you do, well, you, you are don't. incorrect. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's uh, inexpensive lenses, something that I've, I've loved. You know, we've all used them. Uh, but as much as we chase after the best and we dream about owning a Nikon knocked, uh, I, I don't think I've dreamed about that lens, but you know what I'm saying, uh, is that you know, you always want to have that sort of sense of prestige, like I'm using the best glass available. Well, if you're not the best photographer available, uh, the best glass might not be the most important thing. And I'm going to get some flack on that statement. But I've taken some great photos from my phone. And I actually want to do, uh, I've got an idea for an upcoming DP review video. I don't know when I'll do it, but um, of taking a, a digital camera from the early 90s and uh trying to shoot some professional work with this um and seeing if i can actually do anything that is worthwhile the resolution sucks but well honestly if you're viewing something on a smartphone on instagram it still might pass muster so yeah. we'll we'll see where, where that goes oh that's cool i know i've seen there's been contests before where they'll take like a professional photographer and get them a toy camera and then they'll take the professional photographer's camera and give it to a, an average person that doesn't know how to, to use it and see what happens. And the professional photographer wins every time. It doesn't, the, the equipment is a factor. Absolutely. It is a factor. It's not the only factor. And more important is the person behind the camera learning uh, how yeah. to do it. And, uh, and they'll, they'll, they can do amazing things even with toy cameras. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes those professionals might want to use a toy camera or a toy lens. Like I've done some crazy experiments with, uh, with Boca, uh, using, uh, 
uh, old projector lenses, uh, Soviet era projector lenses that again, they cost me in the double digits on eBay. And I just stick those in a pair of, uh, or a set of bellows. And uh, I just get this beautiful soap bubble effect of specular highlights that are out of focus in the background. Uh, and yes, you can spend $1,000 on, uh, on a Trio Plan 100. Uh, they still make them brand new from uh, Meyer Optic, which is now owned by OPC uh, Optics. I don't know how uh, you keep Germany. track of all that. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the idea here is simple. Understand light. The more you understand it, the less money you have to spend to get the results you want. Uh, or heck, if you understand it and you know you have to spend you know, $10,000 <laughs> right. on a lens, well, that's, that's your burden. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and yeah, there was another lens that was announced. It was a Per Gears 10 millimeter F8 pancake fisheye lens. Cost $79. And it isn't much bigger than a body cap. It has a focusing lever on it. I love focusing levers. You don't see them on modern lenses very often. I have some vintage uh, Leica M-mount lenses that, that have something very similar to that. Um, and uh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to pick up one of these lenses for $79. Uh, I'll probably get it uh, for the Micro Four Thirds mount, so I could put it on the, uh, the Lumix GX9 that I have here. And just frolic with it once in a while. You know, if, that, if that's on my camera, that camera would almost fit in my pocket. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it doesn't even look like a lens cap fits on that. So I, I'm good with that. I would lose it right away. Anyhow, <laughs> it, it's one of the biggest factors of preventing people from using their cameras today. They have their smartphone with them always. They have that there and it does a very good job in a lot of situations. Comp and, and when you compare that then to the, the less expensive camera equipment, they maybe have at home, but it's bulkier, heavier, harder to take around. It's, it's a, another reason why the smartphone's winning. Um, winning this battle well and, and the convenience factor of you know you don't have to uh you know offload the the images to be right and send them on to wherever you're going to send them because chances are that it's just like a nice family snap or it's a beautiful sunset that you just want to share with your friends right uh, or your family and it doesn't need to be heavily post-processed it doesn't need to be raw although we have those features now uh in in a lot of formats and so that might be uh, it's it's kind of a it's it's a different race. It's a different challenge uh, within that. But hey, as we speak, uh, I'm hitting the pay now button uh, for a copy of that lens as we are recording. this. So uh, when it arrives, I will mention how good or bad it is. It might be one of those inexpensive lenses I learned to love. I hope so. It looks exciting. It looks like fun. Uh, yeah, well, and, and if it's fun for seventy nine dollars, um, I. Uh, I've spent more to go to the movies once you dial in all the popcorn <laughs> right. and snacks and parking and everything else for two people. Uh, yeah. So, hey, if I can get a lens and have some fun with that. Well, my wife probably would not enjoy it as much as I would, but that's okay. <laughs> all right. Our final story. Uh, actually, you know, before we get to our final story, uh, where can people find you online, Jeff? Your podcast and where you are on social media. Where do you want to send folks? Yeah, I think the best place is just phototacopodcast.com and you can go see everything there and link to everything from there. So that's the, the best place to check out my stuff. Perfect. Uh, all right, well, will do. Uh, and that link will be uh, in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. The final story is an interesting one, partly because I like to kind of geek out about the extremes and this one takes us there. Uh, reported on DP Review, Girl with a pearl earring, a famous uh, uh, Johannes Vermeer painting, 
uh, portrait uh, transformed into a massive 10 billion pixel panorama. Now, it doesn't mean panorama like being completely vertical. It's a grid panorama. They just, you know, take multiple images and put them together. Um, and this uh, this was a uh, a project by Hyrox. Uh, and Hyrox, using their 3D digital microscope RH2000, which I could not find a price for anywhere. And if you have to ask how much, That's you probably right. can't afford it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, and so they they had permission to uh, do a uh, a grid panorama using what looks like some sort of microscope objective and a specially designed CMOS sensor, uh, you know, capable of taking fifty frames uh, frames per second at nineteen twenty by twelve hundred resolution, um, and connects to the computer uh, via USB with all the software on the computer that controls how this thing goes. Um, did you watch the video that accompanied this or did you take a look at the high res painting and, and dive into those details? Oh yes. Yes, I did. That was, it was so much fun. Like you, I love geeking out at the extremes, even though it, it's something I know I will never come close to in in real life. That's not going to happen. But even like it, it matched, it matched the experience and what they were scanning here. I'm glad they did. They chose a painting like the Vermeer here because you could see like in the video, they had people waiting. They had the whole setup in the room and they're waiting for the arrival of her, <laughs> of the picture. Oh, and, and just to see somebody handling one yeah. of those paintings. That to me was like, oh my God, I, I, I was, th- this, the video was done in 2018. And so maybe it's a pandemic response for me, but I'm thinking these people should be wearing masks around <laughs> that painting. <laughs> Right, <laughs> not even in a pandemic situation. It's just to you preserve. Should, you, should, you should not breathe on yeah, the girl with the this, pearl earrings. There should be a clean room. Why are we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what I thought too. Yeah, and so you get to dive into all those details um, with this, and I encourage you to check out. They've got a great website where you can go into all of those extreme, uh, extreme uh, images, and they say that down to uh, I think one point one microns is the smallest that they got with some of their subsampled areas. And that's almost as small as you can get because the wavelength of light dictates that, well, 0.7 microns is 700 nanometers and, and that's the wavelength of red light. So you, you're at that, you can't get closer, right? That, that's as good as you can get. So um, check it out. Uh, I think it'll be fun. But I also want to give a shout out to, uh, to my friends at Giga Macro, which make a competitive product to this. And I don't know exactly what the price point is, but they use instead, they use consumer grade uh, hardware. And they've got different kits that uh, you could get outfitted with a Canon uh, T6i, a 5D Mark IV, or a 5DS. And maybe they'll have different versions of the cameras uh, with uh, different lenses, either a regular macro lens, the Canon MPE65, or microscope objectives that could be adapted to it up to 10 times. Um, and it's kind of a, you, you can kind of put your kit together as you want. And it comes with all the same software and whatever else. It doesn't look as uh, science fiction as the uh, the, the Hyrox uh, RH2000, but it's probably just as effective. And again, it, it's still in that category of I don't know what the price is. It's not listed on the website, so <laughs> eh, who knows? Uh, but I think that's going to be the more affordable option. And I've seen some amazing stuff come out of Giga Macro uh, and uh, and their. Uh, it's important to note both of these systems, they do uh, grid panorama focus stacking. You can't just move it around and have everything because the depth of field is so shallow. 
you've got to take multiple images uh you know through the depth of the painting uh in the case of the vermeer anyhow but in the depth of anything uh because it's not flat you know there's contours and there's crevices in the cracks and there's some levels that are higher than others and you can't encompass it all in the depth of field of a single frame so you have to grid focus stack uh uh in that panorama taking uh oodles of images i don't even know how many but hundreds of thousands uh, in some cases to get your final resulting image and that's just because you can't get around it physics won't let you in any other way uh image to that detail with optics anyhow with light so there we have it uh pushing those limits and i'm glad that that vermeer painting is not only preserved this way but publicly available to yes. view this yes. way um now i'm not sure if every uh you know uh, renaissance artist is going to have their paintings uh documented in this way because then nobody's going to go and see the original or maybe it might devalue the experience of going to see the original uh but still i i would like any museum that has pieces like this buy one of these machines you know i if if one is more expensive than the just get the cheapest one uh just document this stuff because you never know when something's going to get ruined you, know, you always hear these random stories of some uh just errant uh museum go uh, goer leaning on something incorrect and knocking over something and shattering it to pieces or you know, putting a hole through a famous painting i hear about those stories at least once a year um make sure we preserve it all absolutely so with with the magnification that they're doing here does it make you wish you could do a snowflake? No, not really. I mean, uh, yes, but I, I think the the issue with a snowflake is that it's a transient subject. Like it's not permanent. Uh, it's going to actively be sublimating or attracting more water molecules. It doesn't stay the same. Um, and in order to photograph a snowflake uh, using these techniques, in order to get the light to reflect off of the snowflake, it has to be on an angle. Um, but if you could get it flat, you could put a, uh, a pellicle mirror, which is a, uh, a mirror that is semi-transparent. Uh, you've got about a 40% transmission and a 40% reflectance, and you lose 20% in the mix that uh, you could put on a 90 degree angle between a microscope objective and the snowflake, having it flat and having your light in on a 90 degree angle, uh, or sorry, the mirror is on a 45 degree angle. I'm just kind of playing this out in my head. It can work, <laughs> theoretically. I'm following. I'm following. Uh, and then you could get the light source to bounce down onto the snowflake and then bounce up through the mirror into the lens and get that to work flat where focus stacking would be less of an importance and you could do it a lot faster. Um, but, but still, at that scale, with some of them uh, measuring a millimeter or less in diameter, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to to need this kind of equipment when you can fill the frame with uh, a modern camera pushing above 40 megapixels and that's about as good as you get in terms of resolution what's so. the right tool for the right job this is the right tool there, for a there it is <laughs> a painting that's hundreds of years old and very important to our humanity and that's not the right tool for the snowflake no it is not um but uh talking about the right tool for the right job uh i i bought a a light recently uh, for, for my studio, I'm doing video work occasionally uh, for DP review and for other projects to have a good quality, um, you know, studio light, not a strobe, but like for video purposes and always on hot light. Um, I ended up under the recommendation of a number of people 
picking up an Aperture LS300X. Um, and that's set up in my, uh, in my studio in the other room right now. And uh, that's my pick. It was not cheap. It was just over $1,000, I think. Uh, but it has a variable color temperature and it gets bright. Uh, I only need the one light, at least for now. So um, I was really impressed with the, uh, the setup, the ease of use, uh, just the ability to control and dial in the brightness and the color temperature and everything else as, as one would. And the quality was there. It was just perfect. So if you do want to get uh, a really high quality, and yeah, you know what? You do pay for quality at some point. Uh, a light that, you know what? To be honest, you could pay $5,000 for a similar light uh, from other, uh, other companies. So I, I feel like I got a pretty good deal on this one. And uh, I've equipped myself with it. And I can speak from experience that does a pretty good job. It was a light that I had actually used in my diffraction video on DP Review TV. So you can check that out. And I'm not, I'm not going to say that I'm the greatest. This kind of goes back to our previous thought process. I'm not the greatest at positioning the darn thing. Right, I, I can improve my skill in lighting my own scene, but being off camera and on camera simultaneously is kind of tricky. And so uh, I'll, I'll get better at that and uh, the light will be there for me to grow into, I think. Uh, what, is, uh, what is your pick? So I, I, I mentioned I got the new camera and that means I need a new L bracket. And I totally didn't even think of that, about that. I probably would have bought it at the same time um, at Christmas if I'd have thought about it at the time. But it wasn't until I was going out and doing some landscape photography in the in Bryce Canyon here in Utah that I remembered, oh, yeah, <laughs> an L bracket. That's pretty important to me <laughs> to be able to make this work. I mean, I could still use my tripod and I had like a, a bottom plate screw on mount that I could use and and I could get some uh, portrait orientation stuff to work. but. It is so much more convenient to be able to have an L bracket it's so much faster. It's so much more reliable. Like th those, the screw on uh, bottom brackets, they just can become loose as your camera's on there. They don't stay put as well. So having a, a really good L bracket that's made specific to your camera is, is such a helpful tool. And uh, I bought one from this company for it's Sunway photo. And I've, I've been very pleased with it. There's others for sure. There's, I know Really Right Stuff has, has something for almost every I've camera. I've had one of those before as well, yeah. Yep, uh, they're just much more expensive. So again, talking about... Yeah, this is 50 bucks. This is $50. <laughs> and it works great. It is fabulous. I've had it on there. I've been uh, testing it out and it, it's it's awesome. It's made, it fits right around, it's formed right to the camera, comes apart. It's very similar in function to the Really Right Stuff offering and, and it's 50 bucks. So Yeah, and you know, I love Really Right Stuff. Um, but at some point it's just machined aluminum. That's right. right. And, uh, you know, you can put the fanciest gripping pads on it you want. Um, but there's not going to be a whole lot of difference in price if somebody else is able to create something that, uh, that does the same job as equally. And yeah, that's one of the reasons why I've been using like, uh, uh, the Aperture light, uh, or, uh, young Nuo flashes for sure. certain things, sure. right? Hey, optics are a bit different. You might want to be a bit more concerned about that. But for some of those peripheral uh, elements, your your lighting, your, your your grips, your tripod attachments, heck, even your tripods, um, there there's a lot of things that you can get away with that have all of the quality, but they don't necessarily have the brand association and uh, that the equity that comes with that. Uh, 
the, the, the Leica effect, if you will. I don't know if that's a term or not, but let's call <laughs> it that. Uh, so, yeah, you can get away with a lot less uh, so long as it does the job and it does it well. And with your uh, opinion of this brand, I might even look to see if they have something compatible for my camera. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for that pick, Jeff. Uh, and thanks for being on the show. That brings us to the end uh, of this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. And thank you all for, for listening. And uh, stay safe out there, everybody. Uh, things are a little bit uh, unusual here. Uh, just as a brief personal note, you know, my, uh, my, my wife is a registered nurse. And uh, her former employer is the epicenter of uh, a B117 variant outbreak of the coronavirus here, where all of the residents and staff got infected. And the mortality rate of the residents is over a third. Oh. Uh, it, it's it's like an, it's my backyard, you know, and it's it's one of those things where I I, I feel uh, that hey, twenty twenty one is going to be a healing year, but we're still not there yet, and we all have to be uh, careful. We have to make sure that we protect those that we love, and just you know, uh, be good citizens in the world and live in the world the way that you know it should be healed. And uh, one of the best ways to do that, everybody, is to stay in and shoot. Shoot.